expect until at least 10.30 today. The news from RTHK. Good morning. Uh, this is Welcome to Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work, and today your co-host is Philip Wong. Good morning, Philip. Good morning, Andrew. Hey, great to have you on the show. Our first time on together, so it's going to be exciting. Indeed, it will. Double shot of Canadiana here. That's right. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> on Wednesday's Back Chat, we are looking at aircraft safety procedures after 11 people were injured in an evacuation following an aborted takeoff on the Cathay Pacific flight. Shortly after midnight on Saturday, flight CX-880 to Los Angeles experienced a technical issue in which a tire reportedly burst. The pilots on board immediately apl- applied emergency brakes and deployed emergency slides to evacuate passengers. And after 9.45, we're going to look at a new study on school bullying. Let us know what you think. You can leave us a message on our Facebook page, email us at backchat at rthk.hk, or give us a call on 233-88266. And we've got uh, our first guest joining us in the studio today. I can see the whites of his eyes. It's uh, Stephen Jung, the founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airlines Pilots Association. He's also the founding chairman of private jet operator Seaplane Group. And he formerly worked as a pilot for Lufthansa and Hong Kong Express. Good morning, Stephen. Very good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the show. We were discussing before uh, we got on live that uh, I grew up in an airline family. Father, mother, brother, aunt, uncle. All worked for Air Canada. I don't think my dad ever burst any tires. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I mean, uh, your your take on this, I don't know if you've been talking to colleagues in the industry, uh, but what you've seen in the news or if you have been talking to people, how did this play out? Was it by the book? Well, yes, it's pretty standard. I mean, if there's anything wrong or if you don't feel comfortable with aircraft, then obviously step, stop the aircraft uh, on, on, on the runway. Uh, it's pretty much standard procedure. So uh, what you see, uh, even with the evacuation, everything was done perfectly. Uh, of course, uh, you know, we regret to see their injury. But of course, with uh, every single evacuation, there are risks that comes with it. But uh, it's be- better to sort the problem out on the ground rather than taking the problem into the air. So, you know, we commend the for, for for executing everything by the book and, and, and following the standard operating procedure. Do you know if the people were injured getting off the plane, like going down the slides? Because it seems quite dramatic that if they had a flat tire that they actually had to you know, evacuate people by slide. Yes, of course. But then, you know, as a commander of the aircraft, you've got about, you know, 10, 15 seconds, 30 seconds, you know, and, and limited information because you can't see what's happening at the back of the aircraft. Mm. So, so of course, if you're going to hear uh, tire exploding, then you've got the split seconds to decide whether to evacuate the aircraft or wait till the aircraft dock with the air bridge and then evacuate the passengers to the terminal. It's a very difficult decision to make. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened until the final report come out by, by the CAD. Uh, but... Uh, um, it, again, it's, it's pretty standard, but um, it, we regret to see you know some passengers taking luggage while evacuating the aircraft. That might be a cause or, or, or contribute to injuries. Yeah, that's a big no-no, right? They're like absolutely leave your stuff behind. Yeah, yeah. And do you actually know what happened? Why they actually aborted the takeoff? Was it because of the tires, or was it something else? No, there was an instrument failure in the cockpit. And then, of course, uh, there, 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 are, there are four things. As, as a pilot, uh, we we stop, you know, before hundred knots or eighty knots on a Boeing aircraft. Um, we, we would stop for for anything. After that, uh, between uh, hundred knots to V one, uh, we stop for four things: fire, smokes, any control malfunction that deems the aircraft unflyable, uh, and 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 of course, um, uh, if if the their, their, their instrument failure. So you know. Uh, Again, as I said, 
it's better to sort the problem on the ground. So the, 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 the flight crew rejected the takeoff and, and start to taxi back to, to, to stand. And then that's when the um, evacuation command was, was issued and, and 11 people were injured from the incident. Okay. So just want, just want to clarify. So it's actually not because of the tires bursting that caused abort, abortion, aborting, no, but no. it's because of an instrument failure. Yeah. Like when it's actually taking off. Yes. But don't, don't pilots, because don't pilots they actually do like a pre-check oh yeah. absolutely so so the aircraft uh, uh, go free check uh, every mission after each mission uh, and then of course there are big checks as well in between so see well we've got in the industry we call it abcd checks uh, uh, for a d check everything is stripped down mm. uh, uh, to 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 the bare minimum to 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 look for uh, um, any failures or any any, any uh, part that need replacing but uh, before every mission the aircraft is checked but of course it's like a car, car do breakdown, uh, and and uh, with with aviation professional, and we have one of the best aviation professionals in Hong Kong, whether they are pilots or mechanic or ground services. Um, uh, it, it's the best in the region, one of the best in the world. Uh, and but again, uh, things do break down. It, it, it's it's the machine, um, and and there are hundreds and thousands of parts in the aircraft, and sometimes it's preventable, uh, sometimes it's not. And 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 in this case. Of course, if the pilot sees something wrong, it's our duty to stop. We owe it to ourselves, to our crew and our passengers. We're joined on the line with Peter Crow, who's a former Cathay Pacific Czech and training captain. Uh, good morning, Mr. Crow. Uh, good morning, Andrew. Hey, so, uh, you know, we're talking here with Stephen Chung, who you may or may not have had contact. You guys probably have met each other, huh? They probably met each other over the years. I mean, with uh, three <laughs> three thousand plus pilots there, uh, you can't remember every face. Okay, um, <laughs> fair enough. So, so he is. Uh, so he's been kind of giving us his views on on the the accident. What, what's your take on it? Do you think that uh, I mean the the pilot response was appropriate and measured? Yes, I think the pilot response was appropriate and measured. Um, having going back over um, what the um, pilot did, he's. Um, the captain is well within his rights, as uh, Stephen mentioned, up to this <clears throat> takeoff safety speed, as we um, in the profession call it, V1. Um, up to that point, uh, the the captain has uh, every right to reject the takeoff and um, bring the aircraft to a safe stop on the runway and then assess from there. So, as Stephen alluded to, there's um, there's a point uh, between 80 knots or 100 knots on the um, uh, on the Airbus, uh, that you you do a cross-check. So you cross-check um, with the other pilot, A, to make sure that the other pilot is fully functioning, that he, that he hasn't slumped off, and B, to make sure that the, um, um, that the airspeed uh, indication is alive and uh, both are uh, indicating uh, correctly. Um, once you get above 100 knots and below the, the takeoff safety speed, the V1 speed, um, it's pretty it has to be fairly major for um a, for a decision to be made to stop aircraft but it's they are designed to do that airbus boeing are designed to do that um the all the different aviation authorities around the world then um make sure that the the aircraft is physically able to to do this stopping function and it's it doesn't happen every day but it has it does happen um, I've had one over the years, many years ago. So some of us have been involved in that. And um, from my take, the captain performed uh, exactly as he was trained to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Mr. Crow. Um, I'm actually quite curious. I'm trying to imagine myself in that plane. 
in that situation. And so you were a Cafe Pacific training um, captain, so you might have some insight into it. What would the captain or the crew members do as soon as it happened and then the plane stopped? Um, would the captain actually just say, okay, let's go? <laughs> or will, will there be like certain procedures and the crew that they have to follow to ensure the safety of like everyone on board? Um, okay. Well, first up, let's just call me Pete. But, but this is um, <clears throat> what when the when the captain brings the aircraft to a halt on the runway, um, he will uh, apply the brake to make sure the aircraft doesn't move because it's a, a fairly dynamic uh, situation that's happening at that point. Um, he'll probably look <clears throat> around the cockpit to look at the other guys. The first thing basically he's going to do is he's going to alert the cabin. Um, so all the cabin crew will know that something has happened. And he will say words to the effect that crew at stations or cabin crew at stations, and the cabin crew know now that they've stepped up, there's an alert level. So they start running through their mind, um, all their checklists, what they have to do in case of an, an emergency. What the captain is doing at that point, so he knows the crew, the cabin crew are doing this, is all part of the team. He's now assessing whether the aircraft is now fit to be able to taxi off the runway, mm -hmm. um, taxi safely onto a parking bay, and that <clears throat> primarily that he is looking after the safety of all the passengers and obviously his crew. So he then um, will take the park brake off, he will taxi slowly away, uh, he may call for emergency services, um, generally in those points the, you find fire services will be fairly quick to come out and just follow the aircraft. And so I think the, um, the captain who was in charge on that day um, works absolutely as to the way we train them. You know, I was involved with the training, you know, the small part in that training organisation for over 25 years. And uh, from my take, um, I thought he did exactly as we had trained um, all those pilots over the years. So presu presumably you've got the plane stopped and... Uh, is there is there a decision to be made about whether to wait for the kind of wheelie stairs to be brought up so people can get off the airplane or use the slides? Or do you just go straight to the slides? No, no. This is So this is the, the period where he's looking at the other crew and saying, OK, he's trying to gather information to see um, what was what was the failure. Um, do I have a an engine fire? Do I have an engine failure? Do I just have an instrument failure? Well, not just an instrument failure, but do I, what is the instrument failure? Um, you, you know, I said um, yesterday when I was asked the question, um, what do, the one thing that we don't want to do is to put people onto an evacuation slide because it's like jumping out of a second story window um, in a building. It's, it's a long way up. And uh, when you're coming down one of those slides, you get a lot of speed. And um, you've got young children and old folks. And this is where you are going to have injuries. So we're really we're not reticent about using the slide, but the slide is available to us. But it is we're looking for the safety of the passengers to make sure that we can look after them all. Mm. And I think the uh, what happened at, the, at that point was the. Uh, the captain uh, decided that it was still safe to be able to taxi the aircraft off the runway. So if you if you do this on the runway, you're going to close basically the airport, or you're going to close half the airport. Yeah. Um, it's not just that. You know, if you need to, you you have to. You know, if you've got a fire, you're going to you're going to have to evacuate the passengers on the runway. 
But um, for a failure like this, he's he's done his assumptions. He's worked with his crew. He's his crew in the cabin uh, on the alert phase, they're, they're ready, they're waiting, just they're going to hear more from him. The captain will probably speak to the passengers and he has then taxied off the runway. And I think he, he did the right thing. Stephen, I've got an email here from uh, Marcus. And Marcus uh, wants to know, how come the crew let passengers take so many bags and suitcases down the evacuation slides? This is against all rules and training. Is this is this something where a red flag could be raised and, and an investigation might find there might have been a failure in training i mean i get it you know well, people are gonna be like i don't want to leave my laptop behind because it's got all my company secrets or whatever um but are crew trained to fight with people over these issues well absolutely not i mean everything that uh, peter has uh, described happens yeah. in 45 seconds and there are rules and regulations to uh, con- uh, complete the evacuation procedure in 90 seconds right. so we're now talking about a minute and a half two minutes to complete everything that ha- has happened from, uh, in, from identifying a problem to everybody out of the plane exactly is two minutes yes wow so so um it's it, it's about procedures and it's standard across the industry around the world uh, and, and 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 you've seen the incident where uh, emirates um, evacuated the aircraft also a same aircraft a triple seven in in dubai a couple of years ago people were just taking their their luggage from the overhead bin and yeah. not thinking about their life they're risking their own life but also the life of other passengers mm-hmm. what happened if there are smoke filled at a cabin luckily this was not that incident right but but then you know people are thinking about their personal belonging and and uh, frankly being selfish because imagine uh, the, the the luggage uh, everything fell out from the overhead cabin and then blocking the emergency exit sure so the people behind won't be leaving the aircraft yeah. anytime soon uh, the, the, the 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 second thing is we're jumping up a uh, from from a couple of story high bu- building here at least two story high sure. uh, down the slide with your luggage coming down and people jumping behind you it's going to cause injury without baggages thinking you know and, and, and of course if you have heavy sure. stuff uh with, with your overhead um, uh, luggage then 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 obviously it, it, it it's going to be a risk and dangerous to other but and, we uh, but we know how badly behaved people can be on airplanes these days and so if the flight attendant's there and she's got a choice between saying listen drop it and slide and somebody's like oh, 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 oh you know do they slow down the evacuation in order to have like a big fight with that person Absolutely while they're blocking no. out? Get so out they, the aircraft so they have to, they have to them. Yeah. I will okay. put my hands up and say I will be that person. Bring my bag. <laughs> you know, if anything happens, I'm bring my bag. But speaking of um injuries, so those slides, um uh, Stephen, are they designed so that, you know, passengers can leave as quickly as possible with the risk of injuries involved. yes yes mm-hmm. the, the, the purpose of the emergency slide is to get out of the aircraft as quickly as possible and of course there are, there are calculated risks that there might be some sort of injury and you've got to take into consideration that all sort of people flying in the aircraft you've got uh, elderly children uh, and 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 when you're usually on a takeoff roll most people don't even pay attention to the safety video anyway they don't know where the emergency exit and when things happen they panic yeah. They panic immediately, and, 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 and of course, everyone, first thing they do is not unbuckling their seatbelt, getting their iPhone out and start filming, <laughs> right? We're, in the, in, we're, yeah, we're living yeah. in the era where, you know, it's important to capture everything and put it on Instagram rather than saving their own life and the lives of others. Uh, and, and furthermore, uh, 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 people are gathering around the aircraft after evacuating, blocking the exit, you know, 
taking the personal belonging and things like that. Luckily, the ground uh, personnel were able to get you know gather them in a safe place and not start running around the the apron area because mm. of course they, you can be ingested into a running engine. Uh, mm. There are fire uh, uh, risks, explosion risks. Uh, uh, it, it's a very complex operating environment. An airport is not a, like a playground in the street. You can get injured getting run over by a car on a normal road. Imagine an airport. Somebody did get ingested into an engine this week. Yes, uh, in, the US. In, in, in America. Huh. Mm-hmm. I've got a comment from Mike. Man, that's a crazy story. My brother, like I said, my brother was a baggage smasher and he would take pictures in front of the engines. I'd be like, <laughs> not, not when they were on, of course. Um, comment from Mike. Was there a fire danger? Could portable stairs be used? Did the airline risk the safety of the passengers? We kind of answered that. I'll read the rest of his comment. I would rather have an employee disrespect a passenger's English than risk their safety. Okay. Uh, anyone who took a carry-on bag down the escape chute should be on a no-flight list with Cathay and never be allowed to fly with them again. No debate. Well, we're going to debate it anyways, Mike. Um, could there be repercussions for passengers who uh, took their baggage with them against the rules? Well... There isn't any at the moment, but you know, I, I strongly, you know, recommend and push for ICAO, uh, the, the International Civil Aviation Organization, to punish people do that because it's a risk to themselves and a risk to others. You're talking about a life and death situation, and all you can think about is your personal belongings. That is incredibly selfish, uh, and, and 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 of course. It's not just injury. You might kill another person uh, in the process of doing that. And it's pretty serious. Peter Crow, have you uh, heard about a suggestion that people should be should be sanctioned or could the airline choose to sanction them by themselves? I think sanctioning pas- passengers who took bags with them um, on the ship. be too difficult, too difficult to enforce. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was sitting, I was sitting on a domestic flight in Australia in the back, of, back row on a 737 the other day watching the um, to the safety briefing, and I would suggest it was probably 10, tops 20% of the passengers were watching the, the crew. Um, everybody these days, as Stephen has alluded, has got an iPhone, uh, has a, an iPad or something similar, uh, or they've got a headset on, and they're not listening, they're not looking. And so um, what we've done, um, what the airline industry has done, has made the industry so safe that people just don't believe it's going to happen to them. Mm-hmm. So the day that it, when it does happen, as happened last you know, Saturday night, <clears throat> um, they're, they're panicked, and this is the and this was the problem. So they've gone for the, uh, for the for their bags, and you cannot get the cabin crew to say no. You can't go down there with your bags. You're going to have a pile of bags at the door, not being able to get the passengers out. So they've got no choice. You're going to have to let these people go. And as you know, Stephen alluded to, you've got to get them out within what was it, about no, 90 seconds or something, or two minutes. Stephen, you've got to get them down and uh, away from the um, from the aircraft. Um, and and this is where um, I was actually surprised that um, you know that there was eleven injured passengers because watching them come off at speed at the bottom of the stairs onto the concrete is is pretty it's pretty quick. Hmm. We've got a caller on the line, Mike, who might be the same one who sent us an email, or it might be a different Mike. It's not an uncommon name. Good morning, Mike. Well, it happened to be the same one, but I was not satisfied with the answer that the one of your said that it's too difficult it's too difficult to enforce we just got through a pandemic where if you didn't wear a mask on an airplane you got on a no flies on a no fly list forever right and then you and you're telling me something that is really putting really put you know definitely putting people's uh, life at risk 
taking your bag down a emergency exit. Are you telling me that you you that would be impossible? I'm, I'm guessing no no flight lists are kind of a thing, so that's a good point. But Peter, yeah, I was going to say, you know, maybe we could take one step back from that and say, uh, how do we force uh, the passengers to watch the safety briefing every time and to ensure that they fully understand that they don't take the bag with them? I mean, really, um, maybe in the safety briefing we say to the passengers, sorry, go ahead. I will tell you how. You make it entertaining. Right, like Turkish Airlines hired Lionel Messi and Ronaldo and all those guys, and they put them in the safety video. Yeah, yeah. You don't have the same, you know, the same person going through the motions 50 times. If he was going through the motions and he was really animated and he was different every time, I'll tell you what, you'd get people watching just to see just to see what it is. And if you need somebody to, you can hire me. I'm retired. I could help you out on that. <laughs> Thanks, Mike. I, I think the other problem would be identifying the people who did it because people, you know, they're, they're not videoing with facial recognition while, a, you know, this is going on or, or nabbing people at the bottom of the that's, runway, Poli- police waiting for them to catch yeah. them with their bags. I mean, I think gathering that, That's evidence. exactly right. I mean, so, so do you make a safety briefing uh, entertaining or do you make it confronting? Uh, do you show vision of people going down there and being mm-hmm. injured? Uh, to get the people's attention then to watch the safety video. Um, I don't know. I think the the um, soft, um, oh, this is how we do our safety procedures, probably doesn't uh, gel for most people. The other issue is obviously multilingual. Um, so, I don't know, we've got 10 different languages, more, you know, sitting there. So we've got to get people to fully understand that um, what could be funny in one language may not actually work in, in another. It's kind of in Hong Kong, that's the MTR approach where they have people, uh, they have those photos of people falling down the escalators to get the message across. Yeah. Um, thanks, yeah. th- thanks for calling in, Mike. Uh, we'll have to put some thought into that. How, how we get people to actually pay attention and then if penalties should apply in these situations. Um, there was also a question about fire. Uh, would, would the captain maybe not know if there was a fire, but things are done under the assumption that a fire could be happening, even if it wasn't? a fire incident that caused the aborted... So we're con- in constant contact with the air traffic control tower. I think the point of this incident we, uh, that's been left out in the media is we should be commending the professionalism and the time and effort that the the, um, the flight crew uh, has been dedicated their life into a safe operation. I mean, we have one of the best uh, uh, trained aviation professionals working out of in and out of Hong Kong every day and, 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 and they're the unsung hero of the the aviation industry. Uh, and, and with this incident, let's trace back. We're basically stopping a two, three hundred ton aircraft on the runway in a very short amount of space. And then there, luckily, there wasn't a more sinister incident from that. So, you know, we definitely have to commend the crew for, 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 for ha- having one of the safest uh, operation in and out of Hong Kong. Secondly, the first responder responding to the incident. Uh, and thirdly, with the, with the, with the fire, the, 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 the aircraft tires actually filled with nitrogen and there is the thermal fuse and 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 of course when you're stopping an aircraft we have maximum braking uh, we're using reverse thrust to to stop the aircraft on the runway then when it's safe then we we taxi back to the terminal and try to fix the problem and of course at that point the the air traffic controller will smash a red switch and get everybody on standby the fire crew will be out rolling their trucks and see you know if, if we if we need uh, if there are risks of fire and things like that uh, and and of course uh 
as you can see from the, the incident, the fire crew was already on standby uh, when they evacuated the aircraft. Everybody was doing what they're supposed to do. Uh, it, 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 it's, it's, it's like a show in Broadway yeah. and mm-hmm. everybody know what they're doing and responding uh, at, at, at the same time. So, you know, uh, we're very grateful that, you know, we regret that there are 11 people injured, but we're also grateful that it's not a more serious incident. With the fire trucks on standby, maybe that's what we should do. We should just hose down those people that are bringing their bags. It's like, hey, you, jackass, you know, here. Uh, Stephen. Uh, yeah. um, so, sorry. guys, we're going to have to take a short break uh, at the half hour, which is pretty much now for the news. Uh, Stephen Chung, founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airline Pilots Association, plus, 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 is going to continue with us, as is Peter Crow, a former Cathay Pacific check and training captain. Uh, we are also going to give you a quick hit on the weather, mainly cloudy with a few showers, heavier over some areas with thunderstorms at first. But there will also be hot with sunny periods during the day. So a bit of this, a bit of that. Maximum temperature around 32 degrees. And uh, right now it is 28 degrees Celsius and 88% humidity. You're listening to Back Chat with Philip Wong and Andrew Work here on RTHK Radio 3. And now the news with Andrew Shirovsky. An educator says local schools should be given more leeway over complying with mainland patriotic education rules, which are currently being drafted. Mervyn Jung, who chairs the Hong Kong Education Policy Concern Organization, says work has already been done on patriotic education in local schools, but they started late and are behind their mainland counterparts in developing curriculum and guidelines in this area. At least four people have been killed by a Russian missile strike on the center of the Ukrainian city of Kramatorsk. More than 40 others were wounded when a restaurant and shopping area were hit. President Volodymyr Zelensky condemned the attacks. And the Belarusian leader, Alexander Lukashenko, has said the head of the Wagner paramilitary group is in Belarus, days after he led a short-lived mutiny in Russia. There's been no photographic evidence of Yevgeny Prigozhin's arrival, but he was expected in Minsk following an agreement with the Kremlin that Mr. Lukashenko helped to broker. We'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Come on, everyone! The ninth Hong Kong Games is calling for athletes for eight sports events. What's new this time are three-on-three basketball and different age groups for athletics, badminton, swimming, table tennis, and tennis. Come and join the district athlete selections and show us your potential. Let's follow Cheering Larry and cheer for the athletes. Our city, our games. Visit hongkonggames.hk for more. The government has announced proposals on improving governance at the district level. The chief and deputy chief secretaries for administration will personally lead and coordinate district governance. People of different experiences and professions who are familiar with district affairs may enter district councils through various channels. District councils will focus on district affairs and collect and reflect public views to better serve the people. Improve district administration, build a better community. And we're back on Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work, and Philip Wong is uh, doing doing uh, duty with me today on Back Chat. That's we're right. Canadian fist bump mm-hmm. in progress. Uh, Philip, you gearing up for Canada today? 
Well, I have to admit, I am Canadian, but I don't know much about Canada. Don't worry, I can tell you all about it. We're going to have a brunch, and one of our big sponsors is going to be Air Canada. Hey, hey we got a little airline connection in there. Okay, um, but we are not talking uh, about Air Canada today. We're talking about Cathay Pacific, and we're talking with Stephen Jung, who is the founding chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airline Pilots Association, and a former pilot with Lufthansa and HK Express. Uh, Peter Crow is on with us as well. He's a former Cathay Pacific uh, Czech and training captain. Um, you know, a lot of people, I guess there's going to be an investigation into this. Um, we're going to be joined soon by Albert Lamb, former Director General of Civil Aviation. He's on the line right now. Good morning, Mr. Lamb. Good morning. Mr. Lamb, I presume there's going to be an investigation. Uh, there would have been a time when you would have been either in charge of that or had people reporting to you as the DG of Civil Aviation. Um, what happens from here? What, is that, what does that investigation look like? How long should it take? Now, first of all, I'm, I'm a retired director general, so I'm no longer involved. Right. But not, what normally would happen is that uh, under the accident investigation legislation, uh, an inspector will be appointed by the director general to, to investigate into this occurrence. Okay, and how long should that take before we get some answers? Uh, it is uh, it's hard to tell, but what, what is definite is within one month, it must, uh, the, the, the team must submit a preliminary uh, interim report within one month, but that is not a conclusive report. But as to uh, how, how long that conclusive report will take, uh, it all depends on, on the progress of the investigation. Uh, Albert, um, so aside from having a report based on you know the the plane the crew and and the pilots will they also look into other areas because i i think in an emergency a lot of things are involved i guess air traffic control ground staff as well you know will they look into those areas too oh they, they, uh what is that word uh we will leave no stone unturned. Mm. Mm. <laughs> okay, hopefully, hopefully, maybe it was a stone that blew out the tire. That, that could be relevant. <laughs> um, I, I'm, I'm guessing that all of you have seen the movie Sully. I, I have seen, I have seen, uh, yes, yes, not the pool, but uh, I have seen some, some TV, TV pictures uh, of, of that uh, that movie. Occurrence. Yeah, and I mean, it's yeah. all about a civil aviation investigation. I, ha I thought it was a good movie, um, but I mean, is, does that give you a good sense of what's going to happen? There are a lot of naysayers. Or people that'll have their own opinions uh, about what happened, but until they have the full investigation, we won't know. But I mean, uh, I, I'm just curious because I have you guys on. Is that is that a, a do do you think that that accurately reflected what a proper investigation is supposed to look like? The stress it puts on a pilot. Oh, absolutely. Career? I mean, the, the crew, the entire crew is suspended from operation um, uh, until the investigation has cleared them. So, you know, they're assisting the, 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 the Civil Aviation Authorities or Department in Hong Kong to, to, to do that. But it's pretty standard around the world. The, the rules are, 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 are came down from the United Nations, ICAO, and then each member state have their own more restricted uh, regulation. And in terms of airlines, um, when they renew their license every couple of years, uh, it, it, it's basically from, from CAD and they'll see what kind of incident, accident that you had in, in your airline. And from that, they'll decide whether you get your license to operate the next five years or so. Uh, in, 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 in terms of the investigation, everything is it, 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 it's governed by the CAD documents, uh, 360 and, and, and the Air Navigation Order uh, 1995. Uh, so those are the things that, you know, uh, will, 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 will dictate how the investigation go out. And essentially, it's like a, a court case. Mm -hmm. What have you done? 
yeah. what happened? Have you followed the procedure correctly? If not, then they will, uh, the 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 CAD investigator will, will give recommendation to the airline on how to improve, and to everybody else as well, so that we can learn from the accident. This is why the aviation industry is so safe now because we have learned and share our knowledge, and of course, learn from the mistake that uh, other have done uh, or committed, uh, so that we can have a safer industry. Right, Peter Peter Crow, what's your what's your take on you know where the investigation goes from here and and uh, I do want to get your opinion. Did you like Sully? Did you think it was a on the on the money? Actually, I thought Sully. Uh, I thought he did a. Um, they, Tom Hanks did a pretty good uh, movie on that. Um, obviously, there was a bit of uh, Hollywood license in there, but um, yeah. Cathay Pacific will run an investigation. Um, they want to make sure that their uh, that their training methodology is uh, correct, that their checklist uh, use was correct. Uh, the basic uh, procedures uh, were followed, and uh, they will um, obviously then hand down um, uh, their findings uh, to the CAD. CAD will run one in, uh, will run one concurrently, and um, and as um, Stephen said, uh, the information then will be shared amongst uh, not just all the airlines here in um, Hong Kong, but uh, airlines worldwide, just so that um, we can. Uh, the airline uh, industry can make themselves even more safe. There is always going to be inherent risk in um, air- airline operation. When you fill up a, a 777, the 350 tons, and um, head it off towards uh, Los Angeles, fully fueled with uh, full loaded passengers, there is a certain amount of risk. What we try to do within uh, the training department uh, is to train the pilots up to get to that point where the, the risk is is reduced to a point, but there's always going to be a certain amount of risk there. It's, 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 that's just an inevitability of um, flying heavy aircraft. Uh, Albert, um, so earlier we were talking with Stephen and Pete about how the crew and pilots, you know, performed in that situation, and they both said he did. A, they did a brilliant job. What do you, What are your first uh, thoughts on this? Well, my, I. I I guess uh, the pilot um, must have uh, done, done the, the right thing, I guess, because the aircraft at that time was uh, rolling down the runway, was uh, approaching the, uh, the uh, V1, we call V1, the, the point of no return, V1 speed. But probably it should be below that, that point, and so the pilot decided to, to, to stop the aircraft uh, because uh, uh, according to... To the calculation, the remaining runway should still be uh, enough for the aircraft to make a stop. But in the in the process, uh, uh, the um, I think the brakes and, and the tires got got heated up, got heated up. And uh, as you know, uh, one one of your your your, your speaker, I think they they, they they know it better than me. Is uh, once the tire get heated up, and uh, uh, beyond a certain point, uh, it, it will explode, and that will be catastrophic. And the, the, the tires have a safety valve, and probably that the safety valve just just opens up and, and deflates by itself. That's why all twelve tires have been deflated. Mm. And uh, what would that have been like on the airplane when a tire bursts? If you've got what is it, like four tires across? Bloody scary! Like, can you hear it? <laughs> well, you you you'll feel the aircraft shake because it's deflating, right? But of course, with with the intense heat, we're talking about temperature going up to a thousand degrees. Right. Uh, it could melt the whole bloody thing. So so uh, if if the, if the if the tire explodes, then of course you will hear loud loud bang, and that's what 
I suspect happened. That's why the commander mm. decided to evacuate the aircraft. Would the bay, uh, do we know which tire was it? Like at the, with the one at the front of the aircraft, or one of the two in the back? We don't know. We have to wait for the investigation. Uh, but even even if it was one of the ones in the back, the pilot and could hear it in the cockpit. The passengers could hear it. Yes, it's it's, it's, it's a quite a significant um, uh, occurrence. Wow. So uh, Peter Crow during training, uh, do they do you know the in cabin staff? Do they also have training where they are like you know in a mock up airplane and bam you know they have like a simulation of the noise and then they have like oh by the way that's probably a tire burst here's they start getting an idea of what's coming yes they do okay yeah that's uh, correct andrew they uh, they have uh, mock-ups uh, they'll put the cabin crew through it, uh, every year um to different scenarios um the when when the tire deflates uh, when the uh, fuse plugs as they call them um they get when the temperature affects them, some will melt, some will pop. Um, it, it sounds like an explosion. Um, but you've got to remember at that point, um, with some of them uh, deflated, uh, maybe on the, on the taxi back into the, uh, onto the bay, but the aircraft was on the bay. Um, and the captain was talking to the guy on the headset so the, the engineer on the ground who's on the headset, he can actually see these wheels and, um, you know, he might hear the bang, but it's a matter of, uh, at, at that point, um, who makes the decision about the, um, the evacu- evacuation. This is where uh, the investigation will find out exactly. So I you know, really don't want to speculate on that at all. Okay. Peter Crow, uh, former Cathay Via Pacific check and training captain. I know you're in hot demand, so you've got to leave us a little bit early. But thank you for joining. This is super interesting today. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Still continuing. Thank you very much, Andrew. Great having you. Yes, sir. Um, we still have Stephen Chung and Albert Lamb speaking to us. Philip? Yeah, uh, Albert, so I just want to ask, we, we've been talking a lot about this particular incident, you know, the instrument failure and the tires bursting. But I actually wanted to also talk about, I think it was a day or two later, where another Cafe Pacific flight had to be cancelled because of water leakage in one of the, in one of the tanks. So in your, in your opinion, Albert, do you think we should, you know, the report should be also looking into, in terms of the maintenance of the aircraft and also, I believe... Uh, it's Heiko that does the maintenance. So, do, 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 will they be looking into that as well? Uh, well, I I read about that piece of news, but I don't exactly know uh, uh, what caused the water leakage. So, I suppose uh, uh, my department's engineers will will be will be asking for for information uh, about it and then see what what to do. It, it may not be a very serious thing. Uh, uh, it may not. Co- need to be uh, an accident investigation of that nature. But obviously, uh, uh, my department's engineer definitely will, will follow up. Mm. And Stephen, you know, so I play a little bit of Microsoft Flight Simulator, <laughs> <laughs> which means you're nothing, always, which means nothing. You're, you're always a virtual pilot. into a pilot, exactly. like a real pilot, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and yeah. I'm talking well, to like professionals if it, here. If it makes you feel any better, when my dad tried a flight simulator yeah. on, a, on a desktop computer, he failed miserably, and <laughs> I had to listen to like 20 minutes of him walking around the house going, this thing's a piece of crap, this thing's yeah. awful. This is like, rah, rah, rah. Andrew, Philip might fly better than me. <laughs> we never know. No, so go, but, go ahead, Philip. What I actually want to say is, you know, so planes are built intricately, like a lot of instruments are, are you know, working at the same time as a pilot flying. But at the same time, I, I think most, especially with Airbus and Boeing, a pilot can fly manually. So if, in, in your experience, you know, if there was like a instrument failure mid-air, 
you know, would the pilot suddenly just say, okay, we have to, you know, find a place to land or we can just continue on to the Well, it's, it's, it's a bit complex. So we have to follow the procedures. So the aircraft manufacturer have procedures for the failure. So for example, in, in on the Airbus aircraft, there's ECAM action. So we just follow the electronic checklist. With Boeing, we've got something called the QRH, the Quick Reference Handbook. We look at what kind of failure it is. If it's red, then, you know, find the nearest suitable uh, airport to land. It's not the nearest airport because uh, we've got to find, think about the runway length, uh, visa issue, aircraft with the, air, the, 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 the uh, uh, RFF, the, the, the emergency response of the airport. Is it able to cap- cater for that large amount of aircraft? Can we get out of the airport after we land? Um, so there, there are numerous things that we need to consider uh, before landing because it might not be, the, the nearest airport might not be the suitable airport. And, and the second thing is, uh, we need to reach the maximum landing weight of the aircraft. We cannot exceed that. If the aircraft has a lot of fuel on board, we've got to dump fuel, uh, make sure that it's safe. Uh, and, and, and finally, we've got to look after the safety of the passengers, aircraft and crew. Yeah, the, the dumping the fuel thing kind of blows my mind. You could be just standing around somewhere and like, oh, kerosene shower. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> because an airplane is dumping its fuel. Has that ever happened? Uh, yes. So basically, we find a huge body of water where it's safe away from uh, the public. And, and, and we will dump uh, the fuel into the atmosphere uh, in order to reduce the, the, the landing weight of the aircraft. Because if it's too heavy, then you'll break the landing gear. Right. So you wouldn't have like a plane dumping their fuel over Lychee Cock because they were landing at the old Kai Tak No, airport. because that's where I live. So, <laughs> so no dumping over Lychee Cock. <laughs> got it. Got it. So, um, so I guess so the pilot and the, the, the flight crew are going to be put on suspension for a period of time. Does that last for the length of the investigation or is it like a standard one week or two weeks or months or how, how long are they going to be put on ice? Presumably with full pay, right? Well, yes. Uh, it's it's depend on the airline. Uh, uh, right. So, uh, uh, of course, it's, it's, it's to make sure that they're, they're, they're okay uh, and of course uh, they're under media scrutiny as well because everyone mm-hmm. is trying to speculate what has happened sure. uh, 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 so we, we've got to make sure that they're, they're fit mentally and physically uh, to, to, to be back at work and, 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 and of course uh, uh, when they're ready they're ready yeah um, Albert I, I'm just curious like when you were the actual Director General of Civil Av- Aviation were there a lot of you know um, malfunction during your time of like planes in general Generally, under malfunction, it happens it happens uh, very regularly. Uh, an aircraft, uh, say, uh, flying in the air, is not a perfect perfect machine. It has uh, it has uh, a, 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 some some parts may not be working, but they are, some get may be tolerated. Some may not be tolerated. So my engineer uh, has a has has a uh, ways and means to to deal with that situation and advise the, the airline. Uh, it's not an aircraft is a very big big machine and so many systems. It's not a perfect it's not a perfect uh, uh, system with no malfunction. There there are various malfunction always, uh, big or small. Hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us uh, today, Albert Lam, former Director General of Civil Aviation, and also uh, Stephen Chung. I'm going to say it one more time. Founding Chairman of the Hong Kong Professional Airline Pilots Association, founding chairman of Private Jet Operator Seaplane Group. Maybe we'll have to have you come back and talk about seaplanes. Definitely. It's been great fun. (laughs) Yeah, that'd be awesome to have them landing in the... First, we've got to do the barbecue for uh, Canada Day. Canada Day on Saturday. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh, Also, former pilot with Lufthansa and Hong Kong Express. Thank you for coming into the studio. Thank you very much. Thank you, Stephen. Back chat. Thank you very much. Ninety-five years of public service broadcast. Stay tuned with Hong Kong.
Happy 95th birthday, RTHK. Thank you so much for 95 years of public broadcasting service. Keep up the amazing work. I'm Jill YC. 95 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned, Stay tuned with Hong Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. Hey, I'm Andrew Work back on Backchat. Uh, very excited with our guests coming into the studio today, as I'm sure you all heard. So I forgot to turn off my mic, but that's fine, because we're carrying on. And we are now talking about bullying in schools. A new report has come out. And we welcome to the show Angus Chan, who's a researcher with MWYO, a youth-based independent research think tank. Good morning, Angus. Morning. Angus, a uh, new report out on bullying in schools. Tell us what you found out in your report. Well, I can distill our report into three main findings. Um, the first one is that we find that um, most um, secondary school students, they feel like they do have a responsibility to, to intervene when they see someone being bullied. But the problem, the problem they face is that when they, are, when they see someone being bullied, they don't think that they have the skills required to actually intervene. They don't think that they have the conflict resolution skills required, or they don't know enough about mental first aid to actually comfort the victims of bullying. So we're seeing that there's a gap between what they know they should do and what they're actually doing in schools. And on the second level, we're seeing that um, some teachers are very good at dealing with bullying allegations. So when some when a student comes to them and tells them that um, they see someone being bullied, they can, they can deal with it very, very well. But also we're seeing that um, that's not always the case. In certain, in certain situations, teachers, um, well, well, teachers, they don't really know how to deal with bullying properly, so they tend to sort of recharacterize the episode as banter between students and don't treat it with the seriousness required. And on the third level, we do see that um, after the pandemic, um, most social activities have moved online even more. So we're definitely seeing more instances of online bullying. But the problem that most secondary students now face is that um, when it comes to online bullying, they don't really have someone clear that could help them because when they tell teachers that um, they see a classmate being bullied online, for example, the teacher would say that because this didn't happen inside the school, it happened on the internet, I couldn't do anything about it. So what we're seeing is that um, students don't really know who to turn to when they see online bullying. Hmm. Thanks. Uh, thank you, Angus. Uh, you mentioned about teachers not knowing what to do. Um, I guess in a way because bullying doesn't happen when the teacher is there. But in terms of the schools, do they provide support uh, for teachers in, as to how to respond to bullying? Unfortunately, um, most schools don't really have a comprehensive um, guidelines for teachers about how they should how they should do, deal with bullying. And indeed, this is one of our report's recommendations, is that we're finding that currently there are no um, official training courses for teachers about how to deal with bullying. So what we, are, what we are recommending is that, for example, schools working together with the Education Bureau in Hong Kong, as well as um, non-government organizations and maybe child psychologists, maybe they could actually design a course for teachers so that they know that um, when, when students come to them and saying that they see someone being bullied, how they could actually deal with it properly, who need, um, how, how they could help the victim or even the bystanders, because as we found, by even bystanders, when just by witnessing bullying, they will also have um, a psychological impact. They will also feel signs of regret and of fear. Hmm. So, I mean, uh, you know, I'm a 
Generation X raised by boomers. Uh, the solution to bullying was always stand up to a bully, even if you get your butt kicked. You know, they're going to go. They're not going to pick on you if they know that you're, you're going to put up uh, some resistance. Um, I trained my kids on the same philosophy. They went to a very uh, local school in Hong Kong and uh, teachers were not appreciative of that <laughs> philosophy when my kids actually fought back on the playground to people that tried to bully them. Um, I mean, have we have we missed a beat somewhere? I mean, I think my generation and earlier ones, yeah, bully, <laughs> bullying was a fact of life, but we didn't hear about people committing suicide over it, having like extended trauma about it. It didn't go on for long because there was this kind of this, this philosophy of pushing back and sorting it out yourself. Uh, but I mean, now it's kind of Hong Kong, I think, encourages the, the rat culture, mm. right? You, you, you yeah. tell. You, the kids are told somebody's bullying, tell on them. I mean, is that is that working? Well, what we're seeing is that um, it's actually quite difficult for um, students to actually stand up for themselves when they're bullying because um, what we observe from um, secondary students is that they tell us that bullying in schools usually don't happen one-on-one. So instead of just being there being one bully and one victim, what usually happens is, is that there may be three or four bullies, so a bully and his friends picking on one student. So it's actually very, very hard to find to actually stand up for them. Oh, and even as a bystander, when you see maybe four person, four people ganging up on one classmate, just just by inserting yourself in that situation, they feel like it's not a safe situation for them to insert themselves into. Which is why we do, which is why that they think think that um, the only thing that they can do is maybe to run to a teacher or maybe to a trusted adult and seek help. Yeah, I mean, I mean, uh, just to provide counterpoint again, the the, the old school. I mean, I sound like the old man here, you know. You kids get off my lawn, um, but I mean, you accepted that there was. Yes, it is dangerous to step into those situations. You could get hurt, but you did it anyways. Um, it seems like are, are we teaching our kids now? It's like never put yourself in danger, never do anything that might be risky, uh, you know, and therefore and therefore bullying kind of continues. Well, what we're saying is that um, always make sure that you're safe first because by, just by putting yourself in danger it doesn't help anyone. Instead, instead, it just makes, instead of one, people get, one person get hurt, it means two people get hurt. So we always tell um, secondary students, well, our, well, our advice is always to make sure that you're safe first. And if you think that you're, you're safe, then you can help others. But um, what we're thinking is that students do want to help one another and we can definitely we definitely hear that from secondary students. They want to help their classmates. So what we're suggesting actually is for the schools to to give them the skills to actually do so. So maybe train the students in terms of conflict resolution skills, in terms of mental first aid, so that when they when they see bullying going on, they can actually intervene in a tactful way instead of just standing up to yourself and making yourself a potential target, actually intervening in a productive way and de-escalating the conflict so that um, you can buy the time to gain professional help. That's what we are, that's what we are advising. Uh, Albert, do you think the EDB should lead in this uh, particular topic and then enforcing this? You mentioned about training and teaching the students. Do you think the EDB, EDB should be looking into it? Well, um, we, I do think that the EDB has been given a lot of focus on bullying um, over the past years. I mean, they, ha- they do have a very, uh, quite a comprehensive guideline on um, how schools should be dealing with bullying. But there are also 
um, some clear gaps. So, for example, we're talking about bystanders in our report, and what we're finding is that most of EDB's guidelines don't actually cover bystanders, which are actually perhaps the largest group you can find in any given school. So what we are suggesting is that maybe EDB should improve their guidelines to actually take into account on how bystanders could actually help uh, during a bullying, how they could actually intervene and actually give them the skills to intervene. And maybe tell teachers and schools as well that um, when, a bu when bullying happens, it's not just the bully and the victim that you have to deal with, but you also need to consider the mental needs of the bystanders as well. Okay, so we talked about you know, training the teachers, providing, you know, information to the students on how to respond. What about parents? Is that an important part as well in the equation? Well, we do think that parents are an important part. Uh, our, um, our report is mainly focused on, in, on happenings inside the school, so we're mainly focused on students and teachers. <laughs> but we definitely hear from students as well that they do feel parents are important. So what we are always saying um, um, is that parents should actually help their students as well. They should actually teach them or even set an example by saying, if you want to intervene in a conflict that you see or if you want to help a classmate, what's the best way to do it? Because as parents, they do have more experience in dealing with situations like that, either in school or maybe after they left school. I mean, I guess there's two different, are there, are there two different types? You know, we talk about like real physical world bullying. Does it become more gendered? I mean, are boys more likely to be physically bullied? Whereas girls, you know, there seems to be this emergence. I mean, a couple of years ago, it was like a really big topic. It seems to have kind of gone off the radar a little bit. Uh, girls being bullied online. Is it, is it gendered more or is it, or boys being bullied online just as much as girls? Well, we don't really see a clear gender dimension in terms of the types of bullying. But what we are increasingly seeing is that physical bullying, the, how we usually, how which is what we what we usually comes to mind when we talk about bullying, isn't actually that um, prominent in schools. Most of it actually is verbal bullying. And over the past few years, in different social media, um, there has been an explosion in. Secrets page, what we call secrets page of different schools. So it's essentially um, students of a particular school um, anonymously posting um, uh, stories or maybe observations about other classmates. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the online bullying that students talk about happens on these sort of secrets page. And so, yeah, and I mean, I guess I, much harder to detect, much harder to find out. And I guess a lot of it's anonymous now. I mean, it's kind of the weird thing is you, won't even, you might not even know who's doing the bullying of you as a target. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And this is why um, most teachers think that they, they can't help with it. And interestingly, most students says that when it comes to anonymous bullying online, they do feel like the, um, the, um, the organization best place to deal with that is actually the police because they feel like that the police have the power um, to actually find out who's hiding behind a screen anonymous, anonymously and can actually mess out um, punishment or actually tell them to stop. So yeah. what we do suggest is that maybe there could be a link up between schools and the police force because um, already um, police do have um, contact officers in different schools. So, so yeah. 
So what they're saying, what we are suggesting is maybe teachers can team up with these contact officers and actually help with online bullying. I see. All right. Well, uh, well I'm sure we'll come back to this topic again. Uh, anything that involves kids in education. Very, very interesting. Thank you very much to Angus Chan, researcher at MWYO. Thank you to everybody for listening today. Thank you, Philip Wong. Great doing the show for you for the first time. Really enjoyed it. Merci, Raphael Blatt, our producer and our sound engineer, Tsong Wing Ming. This has been Back Chat. Catch you tomorrow with Janice Wong and Danny Giddings.